Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, over $80 million in damages. A jury in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case hits former President Trump with a staggering verdict. How did we end up here? Arlene Richards breaks it down for us. The International Court of Justice issues a ruling in the high-profile genocide case against Israel. Meanwhile, the United Nations suspects that some of its own staff were involved in the terrorist attacks on October 7th. Jason Perry reports. A freeze on new natural gas exports. President Biden is seeking to court environmentally conscious young voters in his re-election bid. But how will the pause affect energy prices? Iris Tao at the White House. Alabama executes a convicted murderer by nitrogen gas. See reactions to this novel execution method coming from both sides. The governor of Texas says he's prepared for a conflict with federal authorities. The state today ignores yet another deadline to vacate areas near the border. Arian Pastar brings you the latest on the border standoff. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. We open with some breaking news. After just two hours and 45 minutes, a jury has decided that former President Donald Trump should pay Eugene Carroll $83.3 million for statements he made and for denying her rape allegations. Trump wasn't in the courtroom when the verdict was read, but he was in the courtroom this morning before getting up and walking out during Carroll's closing argument. Carroll's attorney said during closing arguments that Trump doesn't care about the law and the truth. While Trump's attorney was stifled by the judge who threatened to lock her up. This comes after Trump took the stand in his own defense for just minutes yesterday. The judge limiting his testimony to only the defamation claim and striking his remarks about the sexual assault. Carroll's attorney had asked the jury to make him pay at least $24 million. For more on the courtroom action, we turn now to NTD's Arlene Richards. Arlene, there's a lot going on today. What can you tell us about Trump walking out of the courtroom? Well, he was in the courtroom, and I think he wanted to be there, but he really didn't want to hear what Ms. Carroll's attorney had to say because 10 minutes into her arguments, he got up and walked out. And how was the attorney framing her arguments? Well, let me read a little bit of what she said today so that you have a better idea of what Ms. Carroll's position was. So the attorney said, he thinks with his wealth and power, he can treat Ms. Carroll how he wants and he can suffer no consequences. He continues to defame her and destroy her reputation. He cannot attack her just because he feels like it. So the argument is that Ms. Carroll suffered tremendously because of all the defamation, the defaming by President Trump, his remarks uh, about her being a liar and saying that she's a whack job, things like that. And that along with that, what is it going to take to make him stop? The attorney told the jury that Trump is always bragging about his wealth. So she said, make him pay lots and lots of money. And what is Trump's attorney saying in response to all of that? Well, just as Trump was limited, his attorney, Alina Haba, was also limited in what she could say. So she tried to tell the jury that Trump was telling the truth when he denied the allegations. But the judge immediately told the jury that that, that should be stricken from the record. She also tried to tell the jury that um, Ms. Carroll had some 
tweets that she had put out. She wanted to show them to the jury. She wanted to show the jury that these tweets showed some sexually explicit remarks made by Ms. Carroll. And the judge said that she couldn't do it or he wouldn't allow it because he said he couldn't read them. But he did allow Ms. Carroll's attorney to put in comments made by President Trump in tweets that he put out about Ms. Carroll. So I, I, there were some things that Ms. Haba was allowed to say, and I want to read those to you as well. She said Trump was not responsible for Ms. Carroll's damages because one of her claims was that she received threatening social media messages. Haba said Trump shouldn't have to pay for those threats. And she also said that Ms. Carroll wasn't suffering any emotional damages because she was happy to have the support, the fame, and the praise that she always craved. Now, zooming out a bit, there seems to be some similarities between this case and the New York fraud case found by Attorney General Letitia James. Now, what seems to be the common theme here? I think the common theme is Trump's wealth. In both instances, these ladies are saying, no matter how powerful you think you are, you have to pay for the consequences of your actions. And they are determined to make him pay uh, where it hits him the most. Well, it does seem he's likely to appeal, but Arlene, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Now, the International Court of Justice has issued a controversial ruling in the high-profile genocide case against Israel. And in another development, the United Nations suspects that some of its own staff were involved in the terrorist attacks on October 7th. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. Pro-Palestinian demonstrators gathered outside of the World Court in the Netherlands on Friday. And pro-Israeli demonstrators did the same as they awaited the court's ruling on the genocide case brought against Israel by South Africa. And then the International Court of Justice issued its ruling. The court considers that with regard to the present situation, Israel must, in accordance with its obligations under the Genocide Convention, in relation to Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention. Friday's ruling was an interim one and did not say whether or not genocide occurred. It could take years for the court to examine all aspects of the case. With this ruling, the court ordered Israel to take measures to prevent genocide in its war against Hamas terrorists in the Gaza Strip. The court also said that Israel must take action to improve the humanitarian aid situation in the Gaza Strip. Israel must report back to the court within a month on the steps it's taken to implement these steps. The court did not call for a ceasefire, something South Africa had asked for. And in South Africa, the African National Congress celebrated the court's ruling. South Africa's president said this. The effect of the order that the ICJ has granted today is that there is a plausible case of genocide. This marks an important first in our quest to secure justice for the people of Gaza. The Israeli prime minister also gave his reaction. The charge of genocide leveled against Israel is not only false, it's outrageous. Our war is against Hamas terrorists not against Palestinian civilians. We will continue to facilitate humanitarian assistance and to do our utmost to keep civilians out of harm's way, 
even as Hamas uses civilians as human shields. And a student in Tel Aviv shared her thoughts. I think that the pressure needs to be put on Hamas. They're the, they're the one with the hostages. And this man in the Gaza Strip had different concerns. We were hoping for the ICJ to immediately end the war, to spare the blood of those who are alive. Meanwhile, in another development, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency on Friday said it suspects that several of its own staff were involved in the October 7th terrorist attacks in Israel. In response, the U.S. State Department paused additional funding for the United Nations Agency until the matter is investigated. Jason Perry, NTD News. This afternoon, an oil tanker was reported on fire south of Yemen. The Iran-backed Houthi terrorist group said they hit it with a missile. The British ship was traveling the Gulf of Aden at the time. No injuries were reported. A freeze on new natural gas exports. The announcement comes as President Biden is seeking to court young voters in his re-election bid. The decision's effect on energy prices still in question. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. The Biden administration on Friday announced that it would pause new permitting for liquefied natural gas or LNG exports while it studies their impact on climate change. And that's a victory for environmental groups that President Biden is trying to appeal to as he's running for re-election. But when questioned on Friday about whether that decision was motivated by political reasons, the White House said no. Some of your critics are saying it's because of politics <coughs> trying to please environmental activists ahead of the election. What do you say to that? I think we've got to be clear-eyed about the challenges that we face. Um, the climate crisis is that, uh, an existential crisis, and we've got to be, um, uh, I think, really forward-leaning into making sure that we're um, taking that head-on. The White House argued that the timing was due to a combination of recent LNG infrastructure buildouts and new understandings of what it calls threats of methane emissions, but also did acknowledge that young and climate-focused voters are a key constituency when it comes to President Biden's climate agenda. You know, young people have been such a central uh, part of the coalition that really helped, uh, I think, the president imagine this climate agenda. Meanwhile, 25 Republican senators wrote to President Biden on Friday calling on him to, quote, stop this short-sighted effort. They say that limiting LNG exports will not have any effect on the demand for natural gas, but will also help Russia as Russia can just produce more and supply it to other countries. The White House is pushing back. He stands with our allies and partners. And Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, who's the chair of the Senate Energy Committee, also criticizing the Friday decision as a political one, is vowing to investigate the motivations behind the Friday decision by holding Senate hearings. Back to you. A new method of execution carried out in the U.S. for the first time. Alabama executed a convicted murderer Thursday night with nitrogen gas. Alabama became the first state to execute a death row inmate using nitrogen gas Thursday night. 58-year-old Kenneth Smith was pronounced dead at an Alabama prison after he breathed pure nitrogen gas through a face mask, causing oxygen deprivation. The man appeared to remain conscious for several minutes. For at least two minutes, he appeared to shake and writhe on the gurney. Then there were several minutes of heavy breathing. The entire event took about 22 minutes. appeared that one Smith was holding his breath as long as he could. And then uh, there's also information out there of uh, 
he struggled against his restraints a little bit, but there's some involuntary movement and some agonal breathing. So uh, that was all expected and is in the um, side effects that we've seen or researched on nitrogen hypoxia. So nothing was out of the ordinary what we were expecting. Smith had survived one execution attempt. In November 2022, Alabama officials aborted his execution by lethal injection after struggling for hours to insert an IV lines needle in his body. Smith was convicted for killing 45-year-old Elizabeth Sennett in 1988 in a murder-for-hire plot paid for by her husband. The victim's family say they support the execution and that Sennett got her justice. You know, the Bible says that uh, evil deeds has consequences. And Kenneth Smith made some bad decisions 35 years ago. And his debt was paid tonight. Thursday's event marked the first time a new execution method has been used in the U.S. since the introduction of lethal injection in 1982. Lethal injection is currently the most commonly used method. Alabama's new method drew criticism from human rights groups and United Nations officials. They said the method could amount to torture by leading to a slow, agonizing death. Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall praised the execution and offered his state's help to other states who might want to use the method. Marshall said that nitrogen gas, quote, was intended to be and is now proved to be an effective and humane method of execution. Alabama Governor Kay Ivey said that the execution was justice for the victim and, quote, after more than 30 years and attempt after attempt to game the system, Mr. Smith has answered for his horrendous crimes. The execution took place after the Supreme Court refused to intervene. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Texas today ignoring yet another deadline to vacate the border. Will President Biden now take control of the Texas National Guard by force? Governor Greg Abbott weighs in, and today's Arian Postar brings us more. On Wednesday, Homeland Security said it demands unrestricted access to Shelby Park in Eagle Pass, Texas by Friday. But on Friday morning, CBS published this footage from the park saying Texas is now putting up more razor wire and fencing. Now, instead of vacating the border, Governor Greg Abbott on Wednesday evoked the state's constitutional right to defend itself from an invasion. Abbott says that the Biden administration doesn't protect the border. On Friday, the White House responded to those allegations. This idea that just there's no vetting and there's no proper immigration enforcement going on at the border just does not, does not comport with reality. So far, 25 Republican governors from half of all U.S. states signed a joint statement saying they stand with Texas in its battle with the Biden administration. And Texas Lieutenant Governor was on Fox News on Thursday commenting on speculation that this could lead to a violent showdown. We're not looking for a confrontation. We're looking for them to do their damn job and protect the lives of Texans and Americans and protect the borders in this country. They should not come and confront us. They should just let us do our job. Former President Trump also weighing in on the issue. He says he encourages all willing states to deploy their guards to Texas. Governor Greg Abbott on Friday told Tucker Carlson by phone that 10 states have already sent personnel to the Lone Star State. Abbott also said he's prepared for a conflict with federal authorities. We are prepared uh, in the event that that unlikely event does occur to, to make sure that we will be able to continue exactly what we've been doing over the past month. Meanwhile, footage online shows a trucker convoy reportedly heading to the border. 
Up to a thousand trucks could make stops along the southern border to draw even more attention to the ongoing crisis. Their four-day tour is reportedly set to start on Monday. And lastly, the House is set to be back in session next week. Speaker Mike Johnson on Friday said he plans to move as fast as possible to impeach Homeland Security's Alejandro Mayorkas. The plan is to bring a vote next week. Republicans allege that Mayorkas didn't fulfill his duty to protect the border. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. A Senate border deal is dead even before seeing the light of day. House Speaker Mike Johnson today putting his foot down, saying that the Republican-led House wouldn't take it up for a vote if rumors about the bill's contents are true. Some Senate conservatives criticizing their leadership for launching what they called political warfare on their House colleagues. NTD's Melina Weiskopf reports from Capitol Hill. The divide between House and Senate Republican leadership just got bigger. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is eager to have this bipartisan border deal reached for a quick vote in the upper chamber. However, House Speaker Mike Johnson has hit the brakes on it before he's even had a chance to pass the Senate. The House Speaker wrote in a letter to his colleagues today, if rumors about the contents of the draft proposal are true, it would have been dead on arrival in the House anyway. He went on to push his ideal solution for addressing the southern border, that is for the Senate and White House to pass and sign H.R. 2, which is a Republican-led bill returning to Trump-era policies. That bill passed the House with no Democrat support and was killed in the Democrat-controlled Senate. So if H.R. 2 doesn't make the day, uh, then should we just quit? My answer is no. The bill hasn't even been released yet, or even a framework for that matter, which has outraged some Senate conservatives, some of whom are also upset with their Senate leadership for forcing a vote on a bill that they believe will only cause a political blow to their own party. Why on earth would you be teeing up a vote with every Democrat and 10 or 12 Republicans? This bill represents Senate Republican leadership waging war on House Republican leadership. Some Republicans I spoke to said that they believe that Ukraine aid could pass without the border security provisions, considering how long these conversations have dragged on. But standalone Ukraine aid is yet again another tricky vote that has tough odds of passing the Republican-controlled House. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. Coming up, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis alleged affair with her top prosecutor. The Georgia State Senate is taking actions. Find out their plans. Congress pushing to prevent Beijing from using tax dollars to develop bioweapons. A look at how it ties into the top provider of genetic sequencing equipment in the U.S. market. And the E. Jean Carroll defamation trial concludes with a heavy fine on former President Trump. Our guest breaks down the legal background of the case. Stay tuned for more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis will be under investigation. Georgia State Senate today greenlighting the creation of a special committee to probe her. Lawmakers approved the new panel by a vote of 30 to 19. This after bombshell allegations pointing to an inappropriate affair between Willis and her top prosecutor, Nathan Waite. The allegations stem from a court filing by former President Trump's co-defendant, Michael Roman. 
Roman suggested that Willis paid Wade more than $650,000 since his hiring and that Willis has benefited from his earnings by taking luxurious vacations with him on his paycheck. A new push to block Beijing from using U.S. tax dollars to develop bioweapons that could target Americans. Lawmakers in both chambers introducing bills targeting China's largest genomics company, BGI. If they go through, medical providers funded by federal money won't be able to use BGI products. Right now, BGI is the leading provider of genetic sequencing equipment on the U.S. market. It said the bill could drive it out of the U.S. market. Mike Gallagher is the chairman of the House Select China Committee. He's also a main sponsor of the House bill. He said BGI collects genetic data on Americans and uses it for research within the Chinese military. Gallagher added Beijing could use that data to develop bioweapons to target the American people. The Pentagon blacklisted BGI three years ago, calling it a Chinese military company. A Reuters report found that BGI co-developed prenatal tests with the Chinese military. The company later used those tests to collect genetic data from millions of women around the globe. Zooming out, a report from the Director of National Intelligence says Beijing has been collecting Americans' DNA information. DNA is extremely valuable information. That's because it provides intimate details about its owner, like whether they're inclined toward addiction or at risk of getting cancer. The report said having such data on hand could allow Beijing to target Americans for manipulation. For example, data associated with an embarrassing addiction or mental illness could be leveraged for blackmail. Some are more likely to have their information targeted than others, like diplomats, politicians or military leadership. For more China news, including the return of a British pianist who clashed with a pro-Beijing group, tune in tonight at 9.30 p.m. Eastern on NTD's China in Focus. Now that the second E. Jean Carroll trial against Trump has wrapped up with an $80 million fine, how significant is this for Trump's presidential campaign? Before the ruling, we spoke with Paul Kaminar. He's the lead counsel at National Legal and Policy Center. Today, the judge threatened to throw Trump's attorney in jail. What happened there? Was that justified? Well, uh, she has been... Uh, tangling with the judge over the last few days where she would make an argument and uh, he would say, okay, we got it. And then she would continue. And he said, look, uh, sit down. You're done with that argument. You're done with your questioning. So that's been going on back and forth. And apparently today uh, she was a little late uh, to the hearing. And then she also tried to make some more arguments where the judge said, hey, look, you know, uh, you've got to control and listen to what I tell you, because if you don't, I might throw you in the slammer. Now, that's very rarely done. Uh, it has been done in other cases where attorneys are so uh, contemptuous of, of the judge. But here, I, I think uh, she may have been out of line a little bit, but certainly not one that would uh, warrant uh, being uh, thrown in the slammer for contempt. Hmm. And now the judge also prevented Trump's team from showing media posts from Carroll as evidence, calling them ineligible. How is he able to do this? Would that have impacted or affected the outcome of the case? Well, again, uh, the trial here is only for damages, not the liability aspect of whether or not he did defame her. And uh, I, I haven't 
seen exactly what the arguments were for getting these uh, evidence in. But if the judge says, look, this is going towards the merits of whether he did defame her or whether she was defamed, that has already been decided at the first trial. So uh, they may have grounds to appeal that. Uh, and I think there's other grounds to appeal any uh, monetary damages that are, will be awarded here. Uh, so, so there's a lot of moving parts going on with this case. Expanding on that, how is this trial different from the first one? Yeah, no, the, the first trial, which uh, Donald Trump did not show up, uh, that one was solely whether or not uh, he assaulted uh, uh, E. Jean Carroll in Bergdorf Gorman uh, department store, and uh, the jury determined that he did. Uh, and then the next part is, okay, what are the damages for that? And then for the defamation that it was allegedly after Trump, you know, basically said, no, she's a whack job. It's never happened. I don't know the woman. This is just, uh, uh, you know, trying to get money from me. So that was defaming her. So this basically is focusing on the defamation uh, damages because they already ruled that A, he assaulted her and B, he defamed her. But when after that trial, he went out and defamed her again. So that's what this one is about. How much extra damages do they want to put on over uh, uh, Trump on this part of the deal uh, of the trial? And where do you see all of this going in the wider context, especially given that Trump is running for president and he is currently the front runner of the GOP? Yeah, well, I don't think this is going to impact that. I think what's more important is the other uh, criminal cases against him. This is just a civil case. Uh, the criminal cases against him, which uh, are in various states of uh, litigation here. So I think those are going to be more uh, determinative of the impact on the election. This uh, is not uh, going to impact uh, at all, as I, as I see it, except for the money that Trump will have to pay. On that note, some are saying he could have used those funds for the campaign. But Paul Kamenar, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. Coming up, is Texas correct in saying the state is under invasion? Our guest says that's something even the courts haven't actually interpreted. Hear more of his analysis of the border dispute. And police in Illinois demonstrate that their work is never finished. After arresting a food delivery employee, an officer makes sure the intended recipient didn't go hungry. We'll show you that video and more when we come back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. The second E. Jean Carroll trial against former President Trump concluded. The jury in Manhattan ordered Trump to pay Carroll $83.3 million for defaming her. The International Court of Justice ruled that Israel has to try and prevent genocide in the war in Gaza. But the U.N. court rejected South Africa's request to call for an immediate ceasefire. The Biden administration paused new applications for natural gas exports. This is following pressure from environmental groups as President Biden seeks to draw in young voters in his re-election bid. Alabama became the first state to execute a death row inmate using nitrogen gas. This was the first time a new execution method has been used in the U.S. since the introduction of lethal injection in 1982. 
Speaker Mike Johnson said the House wouldn't take up the Senate border bill for a vote if rumors about the bill's contents are true. That says Texas ignored yet another deadline from the Biden administration to vacate the border. A key question in the border dispute between Texas and the Biden administration, whether Texas is correct in saying it's under invasion from illegal immigration. Joining us now to dive into the legality of the dispute, we have Andrew Arthur. He's a fellow in law and policy at the Center for Immigration Studies and a former immigration judge. Andrew Arthur, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Now, to begin, Texas border showdown is continuing with Attorney General Ken Paxton saying that his state will not comply with the Biden administration's order to reopen the park to federal agents. Now, this is after the Supreme Court sided with the Biden administration. Now, if this deadline from the federal government passes and neither side budges, what is next? So what's next in the legal realm is a uh, uh a hearing that's going to take place before the Fifth Circuit on February the 7th to actually resolve some of the other issues in this case. But if the state of Texas doesn't comply with that order, the Biden administration may attempt to enter Shelby Park in Eagle Pass, Texas uh, forcefully. And if they do, it's going to create a number of bad images that will actually really underscore the border crisis for Americans who are you know, more or less divorced on what's going on at the Rio Grande. Now, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is saying that Texas has a constitutional right to self-defense. He is citing Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3 of the Constitution, which references states under, quote, invasion. Now, is Abbott's reading a correct one? This is one of those provisions in the Constitution that's never really been interpreted. There were a couple of uh, cases at the time, you know, shortly after the founding of the country, in which some ports in Virginia alleged that they were under invasion from smugglers. But the courts thus far have really passed on interpreting uh, this question. The uh, Abbott administration and the Biden administration may both be setting up a uh, impasse in which eventually the Fifth Circuit and ultimately the Supreme Court will have to resolve that issue. Now, some are calling the actions by Texas more political than legal, but is there merit to Texas's argument? Yeah, and I mean, when you're talking about a situation like this, uh, it's very difficult to separate out the political and legal. Political, uh, politically and legally, Texas is under a lot of pressure. Uh, the majority of the U.S. border with Mexico, more than 1,200 miles of a, you know, less than a 2,000-mile border, are actually in the state of Texas. And so the vast majority of migrants who are entering illegally, the drugs that are flowing into uh, the United States are coming over the Rio Grande into the state of Texas. So that's a real problem for them. Texas has also been spending billions of dollars since March of 2021 to attempt to shore up uh, the Rio Grande in order to prevent all those migrants, including criminals, um, and drugs from coming into the state. So, you know, this is uh, not a purely theoretical issue. This isn't a stunt by any uh, stretch of the imagination. This is an actual threat that Texas faces. Texas is turning to the federal government to ask, and Joe Biden is saying no. Now, 25 states or half of the U.S. is standing with Texas. And now former President Trump is calling on states to deploy the National Guard to help Texas remove illegal immigrants. Where do you see all of this going? 
So the National Guard doesn't actually have the ability to uh, remove anybody, nor that they actually have the ability to arrest anybody. But uh, Texas state troopers who have been joined by uh, troopers from other states, including Florida, actually have been performing arrests of individuals uh, who enter the United States legally. Generally, they hold them uh, for Customs and Border Protection. But if those individuals have broken a Texas state law, gone onto private property or they're carrying drugs, Texas will arrest them and prosecute them. It, they, it, Texas definitely does need the National Guard help, however. I note that a number of states, including, again, Florida, uh, have sent in to help uh, the state of Texas monitor the border to watch for the influx of migrants and drugs into the state. They, and they perform a very valuable duty because there's so many migrants coming across right now, there are no Border Patrol agents available to actually secure the border. And given the amount of focus and attention on this issue, could we actually see SCOTUS reverse its earlier decision since it was so close at five to four? Yeah, and it was actually a very interesting uh, argument that the court was considering. Basically, uh, Texas had alleged that the Biden administration was violating a 18th century uh, tort uh, by uh, tearing up its uh, fencing, its concertina wire fencing at the border. The other uh, uh, allegations that Texas made are much more uh, modern. They're under the Administrative Procedures Act, in which the federal government plainly has waived uh, its sovereign immunity for suit. So I think that once the Fifth Circuit considers those claims, they're actually going to find that Texas can prove its case on at least some of those claims. And the Supreme Court is going to be hard-pressed to reverse the Fifth Circuit if it does so. Andrew Arthur, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Four months after Hamas terrorists killed hundreds at a music festival in Israel, a group of survivors were able to reunite with a local woman who had given them refuge. Just in time for International Holocaust Remembrance Day this Saturday. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on their harrowing story. On October 7th, 88-year-old Holocaust survivor Sarah Jackson found herself sheltering three Israelis. They were fleeing the deadliest attack on Jews since World War II. They went to the front, front door, they locked the door, and I have a very big armchair in the corner, and they put the armchair to the door, and we all went into the shelter. I sleep in the shelter. Ahead of International Holocaust Memorial Day, they were reunited for the first time. Ilya Pizatskov recalls the chaos as Hamas terrorists attacked the music festival. We started to hear gunshots, right? We, we, we were just, we, we were right next to a car, we started to hear the gunshots, um, and we laid under the car, right? So the gunshots were coming from everywhere. Pizatskov and his friends drove to Saad, a nearby kibbutz. They managed to evade Hamas ambushes as they passed bodies strewn along the road. We need to get out of here. We cannot stay here. There are gunshots from uh, all over, all over. Um, so we said one, two, three. Then we jumped to the car, started driving. And when we started driving, we, we, we saw a grenade which fell uh, literally several meters from us. Jackson was four years old when World War II started. Her family went into hiding in Siberia. After years of displacement, they decided to immigrate to Israel in 1949. This uh, last event, I, co I, I, I couldn't believe, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it's happening again. That's why I didn't want to leave my home. 
An Israeli grassroots initiative brings people together in private homes to commemorate the Holocaust. Survivors and their descendants share their stories with the younger generations. For some, Hamas's attack was a reminder of the atrocities committed by the Nazis. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And zooming out of that music festival, Israel estimates that Hamas killed about 1,200 people on October 7th. Victims of that attack included Americans, Israeli Arabs, and even Thai and Nepalese farm workers. Overnight, farms were abandoned, with their harvests left to rot. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on thousands of volunteers giving local farmers a helping hand. Mark Landsman could have been spending his winter vacation in the Caribbean. Instead, he's picking tomatoes in southern Israel, within striking range of Hamas rockets. I was walking around my school and people were saying, where are you going for vacation? I'm sure you're going to go to Florida, maybe the Bahamas, maybe on a cruise. And I said, no, I'm going to Israel. And they said, why would you want to go to a war front? And I said, I just feel like I want to be part of this and help out and, and just do my part. To Many of Israel's farm laborers have been Thai and Nepalese, but a number of them were evacuated after the war started. According to the Jewish National Fund, more than 145,000 foreign volunteers have come to Israel since war broke out. Israel's agriculture ministry reports a shortfall of some 30,000 workers. The farmers could not survive without the help of the volunteers. The volunteers are, they, they're filling the gap and they're, they're, they're crucial to the agricultural world in Israel. Um, without them, the, many farmers would collapse. Volunteers work near the border with Gaza and in the north by the Lebanese border. Well, we chose to come to Israel to help because it's hard to sit at home in Los Angeles and watch what's happening and not want to do something. And this was something we could do to come and help whoever needed help. Volunteers are shown the nearest bomb shelter and are instructed to lie down and cover their heads if rocket sirens sound. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Here's another story of service back in the U.S. Illinois law enforcement say they couldn't let a waiting family go hungry after arresting a DoorDash driver. So a deputy took matters and a bag of food into his own hands. Here's the video of him making the delivery released by the Kane County Sheriff's Office. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you're in an accident. No, you got arrested, but we wanted to make sure you got your food. So you guys have a good night. You guys are amazing. Thank you. Kane County Sheriff Ron Haynes says his deputies always follow through. The sheriff's office told Fox News Digital that the food delivery driver was pulled over for a traffic stop. Police charged him with unspecified misdemeanors. Coming up, note Taylor Swift did not endorse La Cruze cookware. Celebrities are becoming the victims of fake AI-generated content swarming the web. And in Olympic news, could a biological male compete in the female division at the summer's Paris Games? Dave Martin joins us to explain when we come back. Welcome back. This week, fake explicit images of Taylor Swift circulated throughout social media, dodging internet sensors and AI protocols, and highlighting the pro problems generative AI poses. NTD's Virginia Gibson has more.
Fake, explicit images of singer-songwriter Taylor Swift flood the web, garnering millions of views as X frantically chases them down. It's a cat and mouse game, I like to say. It's a constant battle between the tech companies who want to figure out a deep fake. They want to figure out which videos are fake and which ones are real. And then it's the people who are faking it, doing better and better every day. David Notowitz is the president of the National Center for Audio and Video Forensics. He says generative AI technology is constantly improving, allowing people to easily generate content with a quick voice prompt. This likely includes a fake commercial featuring a fake Taylor Swift promoting Le Crisette cookware. Taylor Swift does actually use Le Crisette cookware in her home, but the video was completely fake, including her voice. Celebrities including Tom Hanks, Gail King, and Mr. Beast have all seen AI versions of themselves promoting dental plans and iPhone giveaways. In politics, people fear unscrupulous actors could make fake, embarrassing images of political candidates or fake robocalls. What a bunch of malarkey. We know the value of voting Democratic when our votes count. It's important that you save your vote for the November election. We'll need your help in electing Democrats up and down the ticket. Voting this Tuesday only enables the Republicans in their quest to elect Donald Trump again. Voters in New Hampshire received this call featuring an AI-generated voice of President Biden telling them not to vote. It's unknown how many voters got the call. Experts say that in order to discern whether something was generated by AI... The best approach, I would say, is your common sense. Because those people use those deep-fake video audio to serve their purpose, serve their agenda. Normally, they will ask you to do something. Yu Chen is a deep-fake researcher at Binghamton University. He says that if a photo, video, or phone call tells you to give money, support someone, or dislike someone, use common sense to tell whether it's AI-generated. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, this weekend, the NFL has their conference championship games to determine the Super Bowl matchup. Who do you like there? Well, I like San Francisco to beat Detroit. I mean, the Niners are really a complete team with star power all over, and they play the Lions at home. Now, I'm banking on Brock Purdy to have a bounce-back performance. Uh, we'll have to see. I don't think it's going to be a blowout, though. I mean, Detroit's just too good for that. In the AFC, this one I've gone back and forth over. Ultimately, I think Baltimore is going to beat Kansas City. Now, I've chalked about the Chiefs' deficiencies at receiver. Pretty much everybody has. They're also coming off an emotional win against Buffalo. Sometimes you get a letdown after those. It was a hard-fought victory. So then that would set up a San Francisco versus Baltimore Super Bowl, which would be a rematch of Super Bowl 47 that Baltimore won. Well, now elsewhere in the league, there were originally seven head coach openings a couple weeks ago, but five of them have already been filled, yet none by Bill Belichick. Is this a surprising development? I mean, to me it is. Now, two of those teams kind of already had their man. You know, I mean, the Raiders, they hired their interim head coach, Antonio Pierce, who I thought did a great job filling in during the season. Meanwhile, the Chargers hired Jim Harbaugh. His stock is really high after winning a title at Michigan. Now, three years ago after Michigan went just 2-4, and four, I don't think he gets that job. That's kind of like the reverse of Belichick, though. If he left New England after winning that last Super Bowl title five years ago instead of Brady, he would have had his pick of jobs. I mean, six Super Bowl titles, nine conference championships speaks for itself. Nobody has more. Still, I'm surprised no one's hired him yet. I mean, possibly he could have the same demands he had in New England over player personnel with the draft, free agency, trades. 
Maybe that's a sticking point. There are two openings left, though, with Seattle uh, and Washington, so maybe it's one of those. Well, now shifting gears to tennis, there was a major upset last night at the Australian Open as Novak Djokovic lost in the semifinals. What happened there? Yeah, Djokovic we really really got outplayed by the four seed Yannick Sinner. Sinner won in four sets. It really was a kind of a lopsided match. I mean, he won the two sets by a wide margin. I think it was 12-3. He had a match point opportunity in the third set. Djokovic was able to hold him off and at least force a fourth set. But that snapped Djokovic's 33-match winning streak there at the Australian Open. That dated back all the way to 2019. Now, I would say I'm shocked, but after that much dominance, I think you start kind of fighting against yourself a bit with overconfidence. It can also be a weight on your shoulders. But Sinner, he really looked good too. Now, he'll face Daniel Medvedev in the final Sunday. If the 22-year-old Sinner wins, he'll be the youngest uh, winner there since Djokovic took it in 2008. Uh, now, in Olympic news, transgender swimmer Leah Thomas has reportedly filed a lawsuit against World Aquatics in order to overturn their rules that were enacted after Thomas's NCAA title win in 2022. How does this work legally? Yeah, Thomas, this is a biological male, took this case to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, also known as CAS, according to a report by The Telegraph. And the Court of Arbitration for Sport's rulings are recognized by the International Olympic Committee, so they obviously have power. Now, after Thomas won the NCAA title a year and a half ago in the female division, World Aquatics banned those who had already gone through male puberty from competing against women anymore, and they specifically introduced an open category for those like Thomas. Apparently that wasn't good enough. Now according to former NCAA swimmer Riley Gaines, who was there at the NCAA championships competing against Thomas, not only did they have to compete against Thomas, but they also had to change in the same locker room, and she recalls that event with tears. Now there's no uh, word on how far along this ruling is. I will say CAS is not really known for their prompt, speedy rulings and the Olympic trials are coming up in June. So the clock is definitely ticking on this one. A lot to look forward there, Dave, as always. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.